If you have a Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and grab that? We're going to be in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. Uh, For the sake of our guests, we've been in a sermon series entitled Running from God, and this is the last day. We've been here for about two months, and what we've been discovering is it's just as easy for us to run from God by being very, very good as it is by being very, very bad. It's just as easy to run from God by seeking to be moral and upright and righteous as it is by seeking to disobey all the rules. And uh, the backdrop that we've been using over the course of the last two months is the story of Jonah in the Old Testament and the story, the parable of the lost sons in Luke chapter 15. And this is culminating now in where we are this morning, and we're going to be looking at the second son, the elder brother within the parable. So just as a recap where we were last week, we looked at the younger brother, and he goes to his father and he says, give me my slice of the inheritance. Give me my share of the estate. I don't want to be in this household any longer. I don't want to be following all your rules, telling me where to go, what to do, who to hang out with, where I need to be. I want to be the master of my own domain. I want control of my life. So give me what's mine. I want you to break literally hundreds upon hundreds of years of family lineage and history by giving me my share of the estate before you die. And the father does. He gives him a third of everything he owns. He liquidates his assets. He gives what will be his inheritance, his son's inheritance, and he lets him go. And it breaks the father's heart. Not just in the loss of his estate. Not just in the public ridicule and shame that he has endured on account of his son making this demand. But of course, in the loss of his own son. His son runs off. And scripture says there he squanders all of his wealth in out-of-control living. And we learned last week the great irony was that the younger brother wanted to regain control by leaving the father. And it was the very thing that he lost by leaving the presence of his father. He loses all control until he's literally down in the mud with the pigs. And it's in that moment that he comes to his senses and he heads back home. And scripture says, when he was still a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion on him. And scripture says he ran, he ran to him. And once he got to him, he just, I don't even know what it would look like. He pile drives his son, he hugs him, he kisses him. The Greek says he falls down on his neck because he loves his son so desperately. And the son tries to lay out his restitution speech, but he won't have anything of it. He says, quickly, put a robe over him to cover his shame. Put a signet ring ring back on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. And here's something that we learn about the heart of God. Something that's so critical to our understanding. It wasn't as though the love of the father, that, that the son's repentance caused the love of the father. No, it's actually the opposite. The son's repentance was caused by the love of the father, not vice versa. This is important for us to know because it gets at the nature of our own salvation and the way that the Lord works in our life too. So in this story, we see that the younger brother points to the incredible love and the incredible mercy and the incredible forgiveness of our father. 
the lavish prodigality of his grace. Typically, we think of the younger brother as the prodigal, the one who is the reckless spender. And yet what we see here is a father who gives grace upon grace upon grace. He spends and spends and spends and spends at great expense to himself because he loves his son so desperately. And it seems in the first act that what we find is a story about the grace of God. And of course it is. But what we have to see is that as important and as beautiful as that is, it is a subplot to a much grander story. You see, in the first act, it seems as though the story is pointing to the freeness of God's grace. It's a gift to receive. We can't earn it. And yet what we're going to find in the second act is a critical element to the gospel of Jesus. And I put it this way in your note sheet. God's grace always comes at an incredible cost. An incredible cost. It's never free. It's never cheap. It's always incredibly costly. That's what we find in the second act. And so if your Bibles are open, look there with me. We're in Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 20. And we'll go to verse 32. So it says, So the younger brother got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing so he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead. And is alive again. He was lost. And now he is found. See, there's a critical element to the story that we need to understand. Jesus points to it, and the original listeners would have undoubtedly picked this up, but if we're not paying close attention, it's very easy for us to, for us to miss this. Now remember the original context, there are two different groups of people who are identified in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. The first group of people are identified as the tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. 
These are the people who are in a very lowly position. Very clearly, they have been running from God. They have no morality to speak of. They've engaged in licentious living. And then there's a second group of people who are identified in verse 2, and they are the morally upright Pharisees and teachers of the law. And when they see Jesus sitting with sinners, they give an accusation. They say, who is this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them? And then Jesus proceeds to give not one, but three parables. Now, I'm going to quickly recount them, and I want you to look for the similarities and dissimilarities of the story. So the first is the parable of the lost sheep. There's a shepherd who has 100 sheep in his fold. One goes off. Does he not conceal the 99 and then go searching high and low, day and night, for his one lost sheep? And when he finds it, he brings it back home. He invites the entire community to come, and they have a great feast to commemorate the occasion. In the second parable, it's the parable of the lost coin. The woman has ten coins, but one is lost. Does she not put the nine aside and then search high and low, day and night, until she finds her lost coin? And at the end, what happens? There's a great feast to commemorate the occasion, and the entire community is invited. So we see from the first two parables that there's a couple similar situations. The first, something's lost, right? That's obvious. The second obvious thing, something is found. The third obvious thing is that there's a great feast to commemorate the occasion. The whole community is invited. And the fourth one that I want you to see is that always someone goes and searches for the thing that was lost. The shepherd goes searching for the sheep. The woman goes searching for the lost coin. And then we come to the third parable, the story of this lost, wayward, younger son. He runs off, but notice something. Who goes searching for the younger brother? No one. No one. And the big question that we need to be asking ourselves is, was that just a mistake? Or is Jesus saying this intentionally? And if so, we have to ask ourselves that question, who was responsible for bringing the younger brother home? And everyone in the original context knew the answer to that question. The answer is, the elder brother. The elder brother was responsible. Now, how do we know that? You'll recall last week that I shared with you that in uh, the the Eastern first century world, the oldest son always got a double portion of what all the other siblings received. And the reason why the oldest son got this wasn't because he was the favorite. It wasn't because he was always the smartest Or it wasn't because he was the sharpest tool in the shed among all the kids. No, it was in order to maintain the family line, the family lineage, the heritage. As the sole proprietor of the new estate, it was his responsibility to carry on the family name. So perhaps you've heard this before, with great power comes great responsibility. Even though he is given a lion's share of the estate, double more than anyone else receives, it is also his responsibility to care for the entire family, to enfold them, to make sure none of them fall away. So within the case of this story, what the original listeners would be expecting, especially after the first two parables, is that a good elder brother would go to the father and he would say something like this. Father, your son and my brother has run off. And he has squandered his wealth in reckless living. 
He has brought dishonor to our family name. But Father, give me leave to go. Let me go searching high and low, day and night, and I will not return until I find my lost younger brother and I bring him back home at great expense to myself, and I will do this because I love my brother. Give me leave to go. And yet what we see in the story is that doesn't happen, does it? The elder brother, he makes his choice. He says, I want nothing to do with this. I'm not going to run after him. I have no interest in taking part in this mission plan. And so that's the key. That's what we have to see here. When the father divided his property and gave one-third to the younger brother and two-thirds belonged to the elder brother, that means that 100% of the inheritance that is left belongs to the elder brother. All of it. Every single piece of it. It's all his. And if he wants to bring the younger brother back, it comes at an expense to the elder brother. But in this story, the elder brother has no interest. He stays home. And not only that, that gives us a clue as to why the elder brother is so furious when the younger brother gets home. Let's look at this again. If your Bibles are open, look at verse 25 with me. 25 to 28. It says, The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, What's going on? Well, your brother's come home, it says. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And then what happens? The older brother became, what's the word? Angry. And he refused to go in. And so his father has to go out and plead with him. You'll recall when we were in the story of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. I have it on the screen here for you. Uh, Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, and there he proclaims his five-word sermon, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overturned. But his hope is that God is going to smite this city, but Scripture says he repents. The entire city repents, and here's what happens. When God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented. And did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And then again Luke 15 verse 28. The older brother became angry. And refused to go in. He hears the music. He hears the dancing. He finds out that the younger brothers come home. And the fathers killed the fattened calf. And there's food. And there's wine. And the entire community is invited. And the thing that is just so aggravating to the elder brother is this. The elder brother is concerned with the incredible cost of everything. The incredible cost. And then we have to ask ourselves a question. Just think about this. Who stands to lose the most with the return of the younger brother? Now, typically, we think that's the father, right? Because typically, when we retell the story, we only think about the first act. We say, wow, look at the prodigality of this father, how he, he brings his son back into the family, even after he squanders all of his wealth, and it brings tears to our eyes. But here we recognize that the elder brother is the one who owns the entire estate. The person who stands to lose the most with the return of the younger brother is the elder brother. And he's furious. Because in his eyes, the father is spending his money, what belongs to him, his inheritance. 
You see, even the Father says that in verse 31. If, if your Bibles are open, what does he say? He says, son, everything I have is yours. And of course, the, the elder brother, he says, yeah, stop spending it. It's mine. Give it up. I don't want any part in this. And so we see here in this moment, this is not just a story of God's grace and his mercy and his compassion, as important as that is. It's also a story about the costliness of grace, the costliness of mercy, and who has to incur that cost. And instantly we're, we're stuck with this idea that in order for the younger brother to return, someone has to pay. Someone has to incur a debt. The father says, bring the best robe. But what we begin to realize is that's the elder brother's robe. The father says, bring the signet ring and put it on my son, which is an indication of not just restoration back into the family, but restoration back into the family inheritance. Whose inheritance is that? It's the elder brother's. Put sandals on his feet. Those are my sandals. Kill the fattened calf. That's my fattened calf. He is so concerned with the incredible cost. And it all comes to him. Now, let me ask you a question. In light of all those details, is that fair? Is that fair? I think perhaps, if, if I can assume something on your behalf, maybe some of us are thinking, yeah, it doesn't seem very fair. The elder brother, he's moral, he's upright, he's never disobeyed any of the father's rules, he's done everything the father has commanded, and the younger brother, he squanders everything, he loses everything, and out of control living. Why does the elder brother have to pay on account of what the younger brother has done? That's just not fair. And now, strangely enough, we begin to realize just how similar these two brothers are. Let's just remind ourselves here for a second, starting with the younger brother. The younger brother says, Father, I don't want you. I have no interest in being your son. I want the benefits of sonship without actually being the son. I want control. I want my share of the estate, but I want no connection with the father. And then look at the elder brother. Look closely at this. What's the heart of the elder brother? He knows that this is the happiest day in his father's life, that his son has returned home, but he is not interested in that at all. He's only interested or worried about the cost. He says, Father, in essence, he says, Father, I have no interest in this family. I have no interest in my younger brother. I have no interest in you. Quit spending my money. Give me what's mine. And here we see that the two brothers are actually more similar than they are dissimilar. The only difference is their methods. The younger brother, he leaves in order to try and get control. The elder brother, he stays in order to try and get control. But both of them have a heart that says, I have no interest in this family. I have no interest in a relationship with you. I don't care about your heart. All I care about is my bottom line, the benefits that are coming to me. Both of the sons have exactly the same type of heart. Both of them essentially say, I want control. I want control. 
Or as I shared with you last week, I wish you were dead. Both of them have that kind of heart. I want complete access to sonship without actually being the son. But both interact with the father out of love for themselves, and not only that, both of them take it one step further and both publicly shame the father as well. Both publicly shame him. Uh, let's just kind of recount this. We see with the, the younger brother, he comes up to the father. He says, break hundreds of years of family traditions and liquidate your assets. Give me what's mine before you die. And that, of course, came at great public shame to him within the community. And the father does it out of love for his son. But not only that, think about the second act. The elder brother, he refused to go into the banquet feast. It says, though, there's, there's a head table and there's one, two, three chairs. Here's the father. Here's the younger brother. And here's, oh, where is he? And everyone else in the community, they're starting to notice. Where's the elder brother? A servant comes up to the father and he says he refuses to come in. He wants you to go out. And so the father has to leave his own party to try and convince his son to come in. And everyone at the party knows what's going on. And he is shamed a second time. A second time by the elder brother. And in light of that, there's a third thing that we see that is similar between both of these two brothers. In spite of the fact that both of them take on this, this sense that says, I wish you were dead. And despite the fact that both of them publicly shame and humiliate the father. Here's the third point I want you to see. Both sons are met with the father's compassion. Both are met with the father's compassion. At the end of the first act, the father runs to the son. He falls down over him. He kisses him. He hugs him. He'll have nothing to do with the restitution speech. He just brings him back to the family just like that, because he loves him so dearly. And even in the second act, if you have your Bibles open, notice what the father says. He says, my son. The Greek, here, the Greek word here is actually the word for child. It is the most tender word you can use, and it would be a, a word that you only use for a dearly beloved child. He says, my child speaks to him with tenderness. Despite the fact that you have publicly humiliated me, despite the fact that you've publicly shamed me, I want you to come in. Won't you come into the banquet feast? Won't you join me in the happiest day of my life? And that's where the story ends. <laughs> Just like that. Cliffhanger ending. Just like the book of Jonah. And we're thinking to ourselves, finish a story already. Like, what's going on with all these cliffhanger endings? What's the point of this? And the thing that's so amazing about this, what Jesus seems to be saying, is that the, the morally bankrupt sinner is saved, and the man of moral rectitude is lost, as far as we know. And there's a great shock in the crowd. Like, how can that be? It defies logic. It doesn't make any sense. It goes against everything that we've ever learned. 
And I've, I've preached on Luke 15 before, and I've had people come up to me afterwards, and they say, Justin, how do you know that the elder brother doesn't eventually go in? And I say, well, the reason I know is because this is a fictitious story. They're not real people in real life. And, and Jesus very intentionally tells the story this way. The younger brother is in. The elder brother is out. Why? Why? What we have to see here is that the intent of Jesus is not to help us determine whether or not the elder brother is going to make it into the banquet feast. The point of the story is to crush our categories. Because typically when we think about the gospel, we think in terms of those who are good and those who are bad, those who are in and those who are out. Typically, we have the same mindset as those of the Pharisees. We have the elder brother types, and those are the people who are in. And we have the younger brother types, and those who are the people who are out. And yet Jesus says, both of them are lost without the love of Jesus Christ. Both of them are lost. And so when we look at that ourselves, here's a fundamental aspect of the gospel of God. It highlights to us that we are all lost. Without the saving work of Jesus, this is our predicament too. But here's the problem we need to reconcile with. Only some of us know this. You see, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the pimps, the quote-unquote sinners... They are so morally bankrupt, they are so far away from God, that they actually know in their heart of hearts that they have broken their relationship with God. They have run off. And on account of that, they've humbled themselves, and they're following the same motif that James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James chapter 4. He says this, Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. That's their heart in that moment. That's the reason why in this precise moment, in this story, they are in because they have humbled themselves before the sight of the Lord. You see, it's hard to recognize your need for a compassionate father when you feel like you haven't done anything that requires the compassion of the father. See what I mean? It's really hard to receive grace when you feel like you haven't done anything requiring the need of grace. And then we're introduced to the second group of people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and that's the predicament of their hearts. They feel like they don't need it. And on account of that, they're still far from God. See, why doesn't the elder brother go in? He tells you. He says it in verse 29. Here's what he says. I've never disobeyed you. That's the reason why he goes in. He doesn't go in. And so we see that the elder brother is lost, absolutely lost, not in spite of his goodness, but because of it. He's not lost in spite of his sins. It's actually his goodness and his righteousness and his moral record that is keeping him from going inside the banquet feast. It's the good things that are keeping him away from the Father. And it shocks us. It perplexes us. And as I was thinking about this this past week, I thought about this.
critical element to the story of the gospel is we need to recognize that in and of ourselves, there's no way that we can save ourselves from our predicament. It is only the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And yet, on account of our sin nature, the traitor within, oftentimes we we think about the gospel in such a way that we think it has to do a little bit with the sacrifice of Jesus and a little bit has to do with what I can do. And what this parable is highlighting for us is you have one of two choices to make. You can sit in the chair that says, Jesus Christ is your Savior and Redeemer and Lord, and it is not of yourself, it is a free gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And if that's your heart, your true heart, then what happens is in this moment, you are humbled by the work of Jesus. And you recognize that there's nothing that you can do to contribute to your salvation project. Or else, you can be like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And you can buy the lie that says it is by good works that you are saved. Not by grace. Not by the work of Jesus. But by your own performance. By your own moral pedigree. And if you sit on this chair, Jesus, he might be your inspiration. He might be your example. He might even be your boss. But he's not your savior. He's not your savior. And it's in that moment we realize that we have a choice to make. You can't sit in both chairs. What chair are you going to sit in? And before I move forward this morning, it's so important for us to come to terms with this reality because without recognizing this reality, everything I'm about to say is not going to make any sense to you. Because a part of the story where Jesus is ultimately bringing us this morning is he wants us to know in our heart of hearts, I put it this way in your note sheet, that we all need a true elder brother. That's what we need. It's what we long for. It's what we ought to desire more than anything else in this world. Because in the story, we realize that even though the father's heart is he wants to bring the younger brother home, we know now in our heart of hearts that it's going to come at the expense of the elder brother. That he is the one who has to incur the cost. He is the one who has to agree to this reconciliation project. And the reality is, in a spiritual sense, we're all like the younger brother. We're all lost. We're all in need of saving. Every single one of us, we we need a true elder brother who is willing to search high and low, day and night, and to bring us back into the presence of our Heavenly Father. But in the case of this story, the younger brother gets a Pharisee for an elder brother, and it breaks our heart. Because Jesus wants us to long for something. He wants us to earnestly seek after something. He wants us to desire something. What is it? We want to have this this desire in our hearts that says, I so hope and I so pray that in my life I have a true elder brother. Someone who is willing to incur the debt. Someone who's willing to pay the price so that I can come home. And here's the reality, folks. 
we do have a true elder brother. We do. Just think about the type of elder brother that we need for a moment. We need an elder brother who won't simply go to the next country to find us, but he will come from literally heaven down to earth in order to find us. We need the type of elder brother who won't simply absorb a large cost in order to bring us back, but who will pay the price of his own life. We don't just need an elder brother who will refuse to get bent out of shape when the father kills the fattened calf, but one who will willingly become the sacrificial lamb. We need the type of elder brother who says in his heart of hearts, Father, let me go from heaven down to earth. Let me look for the lost, my lost younger brother, my lost younger sister. Let me bring them back to you so that you can be reunited once again with your children. That's the heart of Jesus for us. Our elder brother, he doesn't get a robe of honor. He gets stripped. He doesn't get a fattened calf. He gets vinegar. He doesn't get a ring on his finger. He gets a crown of thorns. Our elder brother says the only way for you to come back is if I pay the infinite price of my life. On account of your sin, on account of your brokenness, on account of you running from God, the only way that you can be saved is if I incur the debt for you to be redeemed so that you can be reunited once again with our Heavenly Father. It's only through the work of Jesus. And my hope and my prayer is that we have a deeper understanding this morning that we have to eliminate this category in our mind that I think is a huge temptation for many of us in thinking that it has a little bit to do with the work of Jesus and a little bit to do with the work of Justin. And God says, no. No, it is entirely the work of Jesus it is the only way that you can be saved. And in that moment, when you, when you glimpse the grace of God, it will humble you. It will humble you, and you will have such an earnest desire to draw near to him. You will long to be in his presence. See, the difference of the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification is God grants to you all the benefits of sonship on the front end. Instantly. Just like that, you are saved. You are an heir of God. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You are grafted into the family once again, into the family inheritance. All of it is yours. And it's only after that, as we follow Jesus from day to day, we begin to look and act more like him. So as we close this morning, my prayer for you is this. I'm going to lead you in a prayer I'm sure in this room, the vast majority of us have been following Jesus for a long, long time. And so as we pray, maybe this is a recommitment that we can make. But maybe, just maybe, some of you haven't yet stepped over the line to follow Jesus. And if that's you, maybe today is the day that you make that decision. And if it is, I'd like, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And you can pray it in your heart with me. So let's go to our Lord and God this morning. We can say this. 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. But I realize now that I once was lost. I was running from you. But you came after me, and now I'm found. I see now that you've made a way for me. You've paid my debts so that I can be set free. I see now, Lord, that you love me before I've done anything at all. In spite of my brokenness, in spite of my waywardness, you still love me. I don't understand it, but I'm so grateful for it. So, Father, forgive me. I give my life to you. This is the first day of the rest of my days that I will follow you in obedience. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and my Redeemer and my Savior. Amen.